You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line today by Dr. David Grubbs. He's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how are things? Things are well. Things are fine. Talked about Robinson Crusoe and Marco Polo in class today, so that was, um, that was exciting. And other books that end with O. <laughs> uh, also joining us is Dr. Michael Farmer. He is an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how goes it? I am furiously trying to think of a rebuttal to that. Robinson Crusoe, I was going to say, and I talked about Gilligan's Island, and, and then I couldn't think of a good, terrible sitcom <laughs> to, to be Marco Polo. Nuts. Next time, man. Next time. So, guys, uh, what's going on on the network? I know that Sectarian Review has an episode on Rockstar Face. I'm not sure what that is, but I look forward to listening to it. I'm on that episode. Uh, it's uh, it's pretty loose, I have to say. What else is going on around the network? Well, did you mention uh, talking with Adam Clark about James Cone last week? I don't remember. I have I I can't remember if I have or not. So go ahead and mention it yourself, David. Yeah. So uh, Christian Humanist Profiles episode. Nathan uh, talks with Adam Clark uh, about about his uh, experiences studying under uh, theologian James Cone, who died last year and uh, last fall's triptych was on. Uh, one of his books, The God of the Oppressed. I was just glad you didn't ask him to respond to any foolish thing I said. I'm not sure that he listened to our episodes, so I don't think it was much of a danger. Uh, Michael, <laughs> what's, your, what's your next uh, Profiles episode? I have three coming out, but I, I think it'll be a few weeks. So I have... Um, uh, I have a... Well, when this drops, uh, Carol, and I don't want to pronounce the last name, will be up to bat. Well, yeah, and I can't... I feel terrible. I can't remember. Is it Vanderhoof? It's it's Van something. Van uh, Hoover. Van is it Van Hoover? No, it's not because I called her Van Hooser when I introduced her, and I had to recut <laughs> the introduction like an idiot. I, anyway, I, I'm sorry, Carol, if you're listening to this, which I imagine you're not. But um, she edited a collection of Dorothy Sayers' uh, writings, so that's that's what we'll be talking about. It's a pretty good conversation. Good, good. Uh, anything else going on in the network, guys, or can we roll on? Let's roll. Very good. I wanted to talk about a piece uh, in January's Atlantic magazine. Uh, It's by Charles Duhigg, and the uh, title is either The Real Roots of American Rage or Why is America So Angry? I'm never sure 
whether the uh, tab or the uh, screen title is the real one. Why do so they we'll do that, it... Nathan? <laughs> and it's called something different in the magazine, too. I, I think just to make us uh, especially angry. <laughs> How meta. Dude. So, uh, David, uh, you know, this is a an essay that begins with a study by James Averill. Doohick explores this study about uh, anger and modern Americans' relationships with anger. So what was the hypothesis of this study, and uh, what about it most surprised Averill? The way that... Uh, Duhigg, that's how you said that? Uh, the way that uh, he tells the story, uh, James Averill was a... I assume still is... Um, but this this study happened in 1977. So James Averill uh, was a psychology professor uh, who felt that the 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 concept of the category, the experience of anger, was one that his own discipline had not treated seriously enough. It was mainly uh, talked about, says the article, in terms of. Um, uh, a, a bad emotional experience that we need to help teach people to get over. Um, that, that, that anger is, is primarily um, uh, something with bad connotations. Right? Uh, but Averill suspected, um, he felt he suspected that anger probably had uh, more useful functions than, uh, than it had been granted so far. Um, the uh, the the quote that he gives uh, that the the quote um, Avril's quote in the article is is that uh, anger has been part of humanity for as long as we've been alive. Um, it's in the Bible and novels and plays. It's one of the most common emotions that people say they feel, and and for that reason, uh, he, he suspected that anger hadn't been given its due. So in this study, which was uh, conducted in a town called Greenfield, Massachusetts, which uh, which is described as um, a relatively small community, eighteen thousand. Um, that the study was was conducted as a survey. Surveys sent out to to the citizens, and it was fairly fairly thick, a fairly substantial survey that asked a lot of nosy questions uh, it's it was 14 pages long and the uh, Duig describes it as as seeking an almost voyeuristic level of detail um, what made people angry what did they specifically say and do what how it was how was it responded to how did it make them feel in the moment how did it make them feel better feel later and even had questions for the people that the the survey um, the, the one taking the survey, there were even questions for the person that person was angry at. <laughs> so it was trying to get a larger, um, a more kind of holistic view of what is happening, uh, not in just in the moment of anger and in, inside of someone, but in the, 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 the moment of anger socially and then in longer term uh, in, terms of, in terms of the relationship. So the thing that surprised um, Avril is, well, the first thing that surprised him is that apparently a lot of people really wanted to talk about why they were angry. Uh, initially, he wasn't certain that it would get very much response, uh, but then, then it did. 
um, and that people were very willing to engage uh, in the kind of detailed analysis uh, that he was asking of them as they answered his questions. And in fact, uh, that, that many of them felt better having done it, um, that, uh, that they appreciated uh, the opportunity to sort of talk about what made them angry. And so here's the, some of the things that, that he discovered that surprised him. One, that people got angry a lot. Um, that, that it was a pretty frequent occurrence, uh, several times daily to several times weekly, that most anger episodes of anger took the form of short, restrained conversations. Um, anger was not typically manifested by, you know, punching or screaming. Uh, and, in fact, most of the time, those moments of anger tended to make the situation a bad situation better instead of worse. Um, that the expression of anger led more to resolutions of conflict than to a further heightening of conflict. And the reason for this, and this is something that the, um, the people who were being a the, the targets of anger, um, the recipients of the anger that, uh, that each of these cases looked at, um, that those folks said that the anger of the other led them to think more carefully about what they were doing, led them to listen more carefully to what the other person was saying, and as a result, led them to be um, more willing to accommodate the other person, and also to understand with better insight how to and why to accommodate the other person. So in, in general, in his study, um, anger and expressing that anger was um, was useful, and um, this is a, a I think a nice a nice sentence um, to to summarize it. Anger, Avril concluded, is one of the densest forms of communication. It conveys more information more quickly than almost any other type of emotion, and it does an excellent job of forcing us to listen to and confront problems we might otherwise avoid. So, uh, surprising things at the time, and as I was reading it, I kept nodding my head thinking, yes, if I was taking this survey, I would have said pretty much all of those things. Oh, that's interesting, because I, my experience is so very different that Avril's study really surprised me, because I, I can't think of a time where I got really angry and later on felt better about it. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, maybe yeah, it's... I mean, in fact, I mean, I quit watching football 10 years ago precisely because I was tired of being so angry. Well, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe we can come back and pursue that. Um, but the kinds of contexts that were brought out in the survey tended to be more immediately personal, relational context. Right. That's got to make a difference. Right, right. And I, and I come from a family in which most anger, moments of anger, came out exactly the way that it's described here as restrained conversation, right? We're not, grubses aren't shouters for the most part. Um, but that, so, so the, so the way that he describes it matches with, with my own memory of anger within that context. Um, I don't, I don't know who you would have a short, intense conversation with about your football, though, Nathan. Yeah, true enough, true enough. There's nothing to resolve there. Like, 
Well, yeah, but I mean, I also think of when I get angry with my kids, when I get angry with my wife, when I get angry with, you know, co-workers, I, I really can't remember an experience where after that I was pleased with the fact that I'd been angry. I'm always reproaching myself for being angry and thinking, okay, that was completely unnecessary. That makes sense. But that also probably helps resolve the conflict a little bit because it makes you take a look at yourself. I wonder I wonder if if shame over anger might be a hidden part of this that, you know, you feel all this resentment, you bubble up and yell at your kids or whatever it is you do, Nathan. Hopefully you're not throwing bricks at them or anything. I, no, no brick throwing. And later you feel like such a tool that you you're you're more willing to compromise with them. Yeah, I think that's about right. But I, I guess I wouldn't narrate that as, you know, afterwards I was, you know, happy about the experience the way that this article seems to narrate it. Yeah, that's true. It's not just that it got resolved. It's that they're happy about it. I, You know, one thing I've I've heard a lot and, and makes sense to me is that uh, relationships where there's not occasional fighting, where, where you're not occasionally angry at each other, are not healthy relationships. And I mean... I mean, I'm talking about romantic relationships here, but I'm sure any kind of close relationship needs that from time to time because those resentments are always there, right? And and if you don't express them, they just stay underground and poison you. I mean, I think that's an important an important point to clarify in the way that you did because it's not that there's the relationship in which there is no anger at all. It's does it does it come to the surface? Is it expressed? Um, and is, is the other faced with that feeling that is, that, that is already inside you? I suppose I could imagine a relationship in which there is no anger or resentment, but it would either be a relationship between angels (laughs) or a relationship between people who are so carefully closed off from each other in ways that make the other in no way a threat to them. Yeah, I mean it's it's a relationship that doesn't have stakes. That's that that's the problem. So if you're not occasionally fighting with your mate, uh, it it probably means neither of you cares enough to be angry about the things they do. Oh sure, sure, sure. And I'm I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. I'm just saying I always feel like crap afterwards. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe that's something to come back to. Um, especially question six. I don't know. Oh sure, sure, sure. Well, Michael, uh, Duhigg doesn't write a simple dismissal of anger as, as Dar- David just narrated. Uh, it's not something that, you know, we evolve beyond or anything like that. Uh, and in fact, he presents the National Farm Workers Association, led by Cesar Chavez, as an example of anger as a real force for good in labor politics. So what does that case study show about how anger can make things happen in public life rather than private I was very interested in this because the, the, the whole problem here, you, you have um, you have all these these migrant workers uh, picking picking fruit and vegetables and they're being terribly mistreated by their bosses. And so you would think, oh, well, this would be the perfect time to unionize and go on strike and, you know, stand up for your rights. And it, it, it took a really long time to do that. And what Cesar Chavez eventually figured out, and I'll point out he uses uh, some, some Catholic social teaching to do this because he, he uses this idea of solidarity, which is very important to Catholic social teaching. Solidarity requires you to care about something beyond just your 
your rights being violated, if that makes sense. You have to you have to have a more global anger that that encompasses not just what's being done to you, but that some sort of actual law has been violated. And not laws in the uh, the you know the the laws of the land, but some sort of actual universal moral law has been violated. And once you once you've once you've got that. Your anger has moved into uh, what does he call it? Moral indignation. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and moral indignation is actually something that allows for solidarity and thus allows for collective action. But so it, it's not so much I'm upset because you're not paying me enough. It's I'm upset. We're upset. Probably more to the point, we're upset because what you're doing is not right. And those two things sound very similar, especially if you're on the outside. But uh, Duhigg's argument, at least, is this is this is what Cesar Chavez saw that the the people who had previously attempted to organize the migrant workers uh, could not see. Something. What's, yeah, go ahead, please. It's something that seemed to be lurking um, under the in 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 that particular situation seemed to be that so many of those folks that. Uh, Chavez was trying to organize had essentially given up on fighting for their own personal stakes and had just simply learned to deal with this the hardship of the situation had simply adjusted to it um i i, I think your your point about solidarity is a, is a really good one bringing it up in this one and it helped to it helped me to kind of rethink through this as i was listening to you that there might be hardships that I will be personally patient with, but if I see that it's a, a, a systemic way of mistreating others more generally, especially others I care about, I might be angry on their behalf in a way that I'm not necessarily angry for myself. Even though, even though being angry also benefits you, because I mean, that's what solidarity means. It means what, what affects you affects me. Right, but I might be able, I might shrug something off. I might surrender my anger. You know, I might turn the other cheek in a situation. And that, and, and see, and feel that that's the right, the right response for me. But if I see that, you know, everybody's getting smitten the cheek, then, then, then what happened to me is part of something larger. And me laying down the indignation for that is not just a kind of personal surrender. It's, it's uh, it's laying down laying down um, my responsibility to stand up for a principle, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that notion of principle is really important here. It's the it's the idea that you know people will tolerate uh, personal inconvenience to a much greater extent than they will uh, watch by as a wrong is committed. Uh, so right. I mean, if it, if it's surely a numerical calculation, you know, my benefit could be higher, but you know, in order to increase it, I would have to, you know, undertake this, you know, organizing and this, you know, social protest and so on and so forth. A lot of people won't go that direction, but if you convince them that, you know, uh, this is a matter of, you know, thy will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven, 
people are a lot more likely to get behind that. Well, that's what I was going to say that something um, Duhigg mentions, but I wish he would have gone into more detail about is the fact that so many of these, so many of the protesters were uh, Latino and, and Roman Catholic. And so they have this shared metaphysical system that's behind their moral indignation. They have a, a shared language, maybe. The, the fact that this strike is supposed to, the, the march to Sacramento is supposed to end on Easter Sunday, you, you know, that's that's not meaningless. They, they did this on, right. on purpose. And it talks about them taking the Eucharist, I believe, at one point, and certainly praying. So I, I, I know that this, this information is out there because an awful lot has been written on Cesar Chavez and Catholicism. But I, I wonder if, if that shared metaphysical underpinning allows them to focus their moral indignation more effectively. The, the other thing I wanted to point out about Chavez that I found really interesting was uh, he was very concerned that this was going to go too far, that people's anger was kind of boiling over. And uh, and that it was going to be dangerous. And so he, he goes on this hunger strike, uh, which is pretty famous. But the hunger strike is not about trying to get the uh, the bosses to to treat the workers with respect. It's about the workers not resorting to violence. I, I found that fascinating. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. That's that's Chavez is most saintly. I mean, I don't know that much about him, so I don't want to call him a saint or anything. But that is saintly behavior. Oh, it really is. No, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, well, David, most of us are not Cesar Chavez. We're not saints. Uh, but once anger becomes a tool, anyone can pick it up. So what happens when the righteous anger of labor activists becomes the instrumentalized anger of Steve Jobs and debt collectors and talking heads on cable news? Or those for whom even labor activists are useful tools. Um, the instrumentalized anger, uh, the, 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 the things that he, uh, that do hit laterals to is the ways in which, um, the sense of focus and release that comes from expressing anger and then resolving a situation after that anger is expressed. Um, he talks about the ways that the psychology of that, um, has been instrumentalized in particular ways. I, I like that. I like. I like that that phrase, Nathan. Um, uh, one of these is of debt collections. Uh, he talks about debt collectors being trained to initially, when they're they're collecting on 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 outstanding debt for credit card companies, so they'll call up uh, a person who's who's sort of in this position. Of, of out, they'll call out, call the debtor, and approach them in a an intentionally hostile and provocative way, so that the debtor will respond angrily, and then the debt collector will change their tone, attempt to de-escalate the situation, and approach approach the debtor in the sense of can we meet halfway it isn't you know this is this this conflict we we can't you know this is this is not useful how can we do something more constructive and what they found was that this particular approach seemed to be effective in getting people to pay back their payback money Um, you know what this made me think of david is the opening minutes of rocky yeah 
Um, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the opening minutes of Rocky. Yeah, where you know Rocky is, you know, working for the loan shark, and he goes to the person and he grabs him and shakes him up, but then he says, "Hey, look, I know if you don't work, you can't pay this off. So what can we work out here?" Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> it's, a, it, it, it's it's Rocky Balboa debt collection. Yeah, well, it's it's sort of you know good cop, bad cop, and you're playing both cops, right? Um, but. So 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 there they're using they're using the psychology of anger first provoke the the anger response and then once that once that anger is out there then sort of step back and present this this uh, proposal for compromise so that um, a sense of catharsis comes out of it you're angry you've gotten that out there I hear you and let's talk about what we can do constructively so you feel as if you your anger has accomplished something right you've got a better deal than you would have if you weren't angry but getting any kind of payment on debt at all is a win for the debt collector so that whole process was more about getting the debtor into the frame of mind um, to pay anything at all um, when it feels as if their anger has accomplished a more um, a more workable situation for them but it's but it's but it's a false feeling the whole thing was set up to begin with um, the Steve Jobs reference um, uh, this was the story tells us uh, back in the 90s um, Apple was not doing well and uh, the I, th I guess it was the head of another company um, said that uh, they should just, you know, sell off their, you know, kind of sell off all their assets and, and accept their fate. And uh, when this was brought up to um, Steve Jobs, his response was, um, well, screw that guy, basically. And apparently this, this animated uh, the employees of the company um, as they united to shout, screw that guy, and then persevere through this, through the situation. Um, and listeners, if you read the article, you'll see that he didn't yell, screw that guy. Yeah, no, that, yeah, I'm, I'm bowdlerizing it. Um, again, point being, um, anger was instrumentalized in the sense that, um, uh, here's, here's some folks who are in a bad situation, um, as a company, uh, they're probably all fearing for their future professional lives. Um, they're wondering what, you know what the next months look like uh, potential uh, potentially that anger could find um, uh, a focus in you know the management of the company um, but instead it gets directed outside at this uh, at this other target with the result that um, the anger leads to motivation to persevere and excel in the recovery of the company instead of another kind of situation and then instrumentalized anger um, in terms of news, um, he, he talks about uh, news programming in particular that is intentionally provocative, intentionally trying to work up the angry reactions of the viewers, uh, and his two examples in particular are Fox and MSNBC. Um, and and the whole point of this, regardless of, of what they're talking about, there may be issues that are being talked about on the cable news that are worthy of righteous indignation. But 
the righteous indignation or any indignation at all is being used in this context to attract and sustain viewership. All right, with with the result that you know corporate sponsors are buying advertisements and the news network does well because it has good viewership. You know, again, the anger is a tool for um, the profit of the company that's 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 learned how to leverage people psychologically in that way. Right. And this is the part that was illuminating for me because like I said, I, I'm not a person who enjoys having been angry. So I never really understood why people kept watching Bill O'Reilly, but for some people, apparently, I mean, that's, it's kind of like a, a, a drug. You go back for your next hit. Anger can be really clarifying. Um, a lot of us have a, a sort of nagging feeling that things are wrong um, that we're, that we are discontented or that we feel threatened. Um, someone standing there pointing a finger at another saying, you, you brought this evil, like the old lady and the birds. Um, that, that for, for, you know, a lot of folks, I think is a kind of clarifying emotion. It gives their, it gives all of this diffuse negativity of focus in rage. And for that moment, at least, it all makes sense. The thing I found most interesting about that section is that MSNBC shows less actual news than Fox does. Liberals love to pick on Fox News, faux news. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it's it's MSNBC that's, that's also, or even more so, giving uh, nothing but opinion. Right. I don't right. want to. I don't want to rush to defend Fox News here. I think they're a, a force of <laughs> evil on the planet. So uh, d- please don't misunderstand me. Well, what Michael has said is, if you set the bar low enough, Fox doesn't look nearly as bad. Uh, they don't look uniquely evil. Let me put it that way. There you go. There you go. Well, do either the... of you watch Twenty Four Hour News Networks? Like I, no. I, I go out heck, of my way not to watch them. They show Fox no. News in my school's cafeteria, and I. Uh, I just I can't imagine wanting to watch that while I ate. And and again, not just Fox. I wouldn't want to watch MSNBC or CNN either. No, I, I do remember though when the three of us were uh, at the uh, Econo Lodge in uh, Sioux Center, Iowa, uh, going down to the uh, lobby of the hotel and uh, watching a room full of academics watch Fox News uh, was almost as good as watching uh, people heckle street preachers. <laughs> <laughs> that was exciting. Well, well, Michael, I want to turn from instrumentalized anger to what I think of as post-instrumental anger. Uh, and this is the case study of Larry Cagle. Uh, so what challenges, or what changes, pardon me, in the nature of political anger does Duhigg explore in Cagle's narrative? So he teaches English at an Oklahoma high school. I think it's in Tulsa. And... Uh, like a lot of public schools, the Tulsa public schools are in financial trouble. And like a lot of schools that are in financial trouble, this one uh, perhaps unfairly punishes teachers. So he's making, oh, what does he say? About $2,000 a month take home. Uh, and and he's had it. And it's completely reasonable for him to have it, right? I mean, that's that's pretty lousy. And and it, it seems very much like the school isn't treating him well. And his solution is on the search list, very uh, Chavezarian, uh, which is that he, he organizes a strike uh, with 
with some other teachers and they all call in sick and uh, it, it throws the school into chaos. And this works so well that uh, he starts calling teachers at other schools and telling them to go on strike. And, uh, you know, that that also works really well. There, it gets a lot of uh, it gets a lot of national attention. This fits in with some other uh, some other teacher strikes that are going on at the same time. And it actually works. They, uh, they, they got a pay raise. It was six thousand dollars a year or something. Not a huge pay raise, but one I would certainly take uh, if it was offered to me. Uh, but they, they weren't happy, both because I suppose it wasn't enough money and also because it wasn't going to fix some of the other problems that were going on at the school. So they're going to, at this point, they're going to organize a, a walkout for all the teachers in the entire state of Oklahoma. And uh, let's see, it says 80,000 people attended these demonstrations. It was a huge thing. Uh, and things kind of turned ugly for Cagle. Uh He's he's having these very public fights in the media. He's uh, he's attacking people personally. He says, I, I thought this was really telling. I was having a lot of arguments at home. I wanted to stop, but I couldn't stop feeling so angry all the time. I knew it was hurting my family, but all I could think about was punishing the people who had made me angry for so long. It, it really does sound like kind of an addiction. It, it sounds like a... a symbol that has lost the thing it signifies say at one point he was angry about something and now he wants to punish people for having made him angry the the inciting incident is no longer what's important what's important is his feelings you can see how this is the opposite of what cesar chavez was doing there's no clear goal here there's no um there's no shared metaphysical underpinning this is this is pure revenge at this point it's it's Anger that can no longer be controlled and is is hurting everybody in its vicinity. David, anything to add on the uh, Kegel narrative? Putting him alongside of Chavez was really interesting because um, the way it's pre- uh, the way uh, the two cases are presented in this article, um, Chavez sees the need for there to be some kind of discussion and back and forth. The problem is that um, in his particular situation, uh, the companies had all the power and uh, the the existing unions were, were simply not um, were not representing in the way in the way that, that they ought to. Um, and so uh, it the there, there wasn't even a conversation happening. Um, but he was also very, uh, very attentive to uh, the, the means uh, of, of change uh, in, in the movement that he was leading. Uh, in Cagle's case, uh, he almost reminds me, it, it almost makes me think of, of, of kind of a dark Don Quixote um, in which uh, his his anger becomes, you know, just uh, a quest to take on everything that has made him frustrated and unhappy, and his anger isn't going to create those changes. 
instrument in 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 raising the mass anger of others isn't going to make that happen. Well, and actually, it it uh, he points out in the article it does exactly the opposite. It it wins them a few concessions, but it damages these relationships that they're going to need in order to make really substantial change in the future. So he really kind of shot himself in the foot. Yeah, it's it, the the I you know there's that ideal there's that there's that thing that he wanted to achieve but the ideal also seems to include making everybody that made things bad initially like like also they've got to pay and anything short of that is unacceptable and so the the purity of this kind of dark ideal um ends up you know, in, in, ends up making everything worse in the way that very often, um, you know, uh, I tell, you know, I tell my students in all different kinds of contexts, um, don't let the perfect, don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good enough. And, uh, th- this maybe is, is, is an instance kind of like that. Um, you know, the thing that he wanted to achieve is something that, his anger and and maybe maybe nothing could achieve and it would only make it worse as he as he clung to it and just kept shouting and david i mean this is i mean the point in the article where you know i start thinking in a way that you know is probably going to sound like a republican to our most devoted dnc listeners and a lib to our most ardent gop partisans uh and i'm just going to have to live with that because i i found a lot of truth in Duhigg's exploration of the revenge impulse that you're narrating here, this shift from a desire to make right what's wrong and to achieve certain specified ends to a desire to inflict suffering on those who are wrong. Uh, and I mean, I'll, I'll confess, I see it when I, I, when I see the crowds chanting lock her up. I see it when social media piles on people who pose no threat anywhere near commensurate to the intensity of their rage. Um, am I guilty here, David, of playing the both sides game or, you know, do you share my suspicion that getting mad at the both sides rhetoric is somehow also part of this picture? Uh, yes, 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 yes. And yes. (laughs) All right. All right. Carry on. Um, okay. So first that, that, that revenge impulse, I really like the way that you express that. Um, it's not merely good enough to say this thing is wrong. Can we make it right? But also to say those who made this wrong thing are evil, wrong, bad monster people who must be destroyed. Um, the this impulse, uh, and I think, and 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 Duhigg Duhigg makes this point that moral indignation very easily shifts into that, um, because once you've made it once you've made it a moral issue, that means that those who are instrumental in creating that crisis are also wrongdoers, right? Um, not just that they did it wrong, but that they did you wrong, right? Uh, so can you know thinking of the situation in that way um, makes it one in which punishment for wrongdoing is i mean it's it's sort of lurking there in the wings you know it's not just that the thing that you did had this bad outcome from other people it's that you are a bad person um and 
it's it's just right next door. Once once you make it moral, how are we going to punish the wrongdoer? Is 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 there just that's that's an attitude that's there just waiting to get geared up if it isn't already right um you know like the 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 yellow vests in paris building guillotines right it's not just that they want particular policies or the removal of particular policies it's that they're already setting up you know head chopping machines um even though they actually did that down the road, they'd wish they hadn't. They'd be like Gilmore throwing bricks at his kids. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which he never le- did. Le- listeners, I do not throw bricks at my kids. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, I mean, exactly that. Like, like the, the guillotine would not make it better, right? Um, right, I mean, I, I think you could ask Robespierre about that if you could find him rolling about. <laughs> rolling. Um, yeah. So the problem, and this is the, this is one of the things that makes the both sides game, as you say, playing the both sides game, and why it bothers people, is because it's very easy to feel the the authentic weight of your own moral priorities, so that. To see someone say, "Well, this side does this, and this side does that," um, and to to the, to the degree that you are engaged in this, you know, in this environment of, of of anger and rage, to the part that your righteous indignation has been engaged, um, that that will, you know, this side does this, and this does that, does that 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 both sides are doing it. Um, completely misses the point because the other side are monsters. <laughs> of course they fight and we fight. We are the knights and they are the monsters. How do you think it's going to play out? You've got to punch Nazis. Well, and I think the the other part of that, David, is that we tend to see our own side as a collection of individuals, whereas we see the other side as a monolithic whole. So, if you're if you're a if you're a liberal, this last weekend was the Covington Catholic smiling kid thing at the at Washington D.C. I'm sure by the time this post, there'll be a million other twists. But I, I think part of the rage about that from the left was that this guy is a member of the same movement that produced the Charlottesville Nazi rally, uh, which I guess in a very very broad sense that's true in the sense that he seems to support Trump. Many of those people supported Trump. So in that case, yeah, I guess I guess if you're going to use a, a really, really broad brush, you could say uh, that they're part of the same movement. But the point is, we'd never do that for anybody on our side. So if, if when, when Antifa goes too far and puts someone in the hospital, it's very easy for liberals to see that that person is an outlier. He's not like the rest of us. The rest of us, sure, we don't like Nazis, but we wouldn't want to kill anybody. But we don't, we don't we we're not able to offer the other side the benefit of that doubt. I think. And yeah. in fact, sometimes it's seen as a moral failing to offer the other side the benefit of that doubt, right? I mean, and I'll, I'll confess that's the part that, you know, I I don't know what to do with morally, uh, because there are so many people convinced that when I raise certain questions that I am objectively supporting evil in the world. And that's, you know, not necessarily how I'm, you know, intending to come across. Uh, but, you know, I do have a sense that, you know, a certain kind of moralism 
is better than other kinds of moralism, right? Uh, I tend to prefer the kind of moralism that, you know, identifies evil, but doesn't draw a line down the middle of the world that, you know, ends six feet in front of me. I, I prefer, you know, to, to paraphrase and appropriate uh, Solzhenitsyn, right? To see the line between good and evil as, as going through the middle of me, not between me and that guy. Yeah, you, you are the line nice. between Cesar Chavez and Larry Cagle. We'd all we'd all like to imagine ourselves as Chavez fighting for this righteous cause, but in fact, most of us, when we get angry, have a cause that's more or less righteous. It's not like Larry Cagle had a bad cause, but he completely lost sight of it, and the anger became the main thing. And I think there's something so human about that. And even Chavez was probably not always in all places the Chavez of this article, right? No, I mean, like I mean, like all of the heroes, when we dig into them, it always gets more complicated. But, you know, we, but, but part we, of, li- we like the hagiography of the people on our side. I suspect part of the thing that kept Chavez from doing that was his awareness that it would be easy for him to do that. I don't know that. I'm not a Cesar Chavez expert, but I suspect, I suspect that, that that was a possibility that had occurred to him. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that also has something to do with the fact that he confessed his sins with some reg- regularity. That sounds plausible. <laughs> Which I, I realize I'm stealing Michael's material later in the episode, so sorry about that, Michael. That's all right. I had that hadn't occurred to me. I like it. Yeah, I, I just want to throw in one more example, and, and this has been a few years ago. But do y'all remember the furor when uh, Jimmy Fallon had Trump, candidate Trump, on his show, and the criticism that he got for humanizing Trump? I, oh, I remember that well. It was weird, though, because Jimmy Fallon usually has such hard-hitting political commentary. Right, exactly. <laughs> he's, he's usually such a get-in-your-face interview kind of guy, but he really nerfed it for Trump. He just he dropped the ball on that one. How about oh. nobody ever has another political figure on for a softball late-night talk show interview? How about we just do that? Or just how about we get rid of the late-night talk shows? Actually, David, I do remember because I'm still pleased with this joke two and a half years later. Uh, I I said, you know, if we're this worked up about, you know, Jimmy Fallon, do we want Alex Trebek to sign off Jeopardy every night shouting Trumpo Delendum Est? (laughs) Maybe. Sick, uh, uh, what is it? I'm so bad at this. Sick Semperist Tyrannos. There we go. Sick, Sick Semper Game Show Huss. I was thinking that's sick. That's deadbeats, Lebowski. Yeah, I was thinking sick at Gloria Mundi, but that's not exactly the same thing. Yeah, different Latin, different Latin. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, so back to the Covington Catholic thing, and and I, I think that was a horrible situation. Nobody comes out looking really good. Uh, anybody involved or anybody talking about it? But I will say that I think a lot of the. A lot of the condemnation of those kids came from people who would otherwise be inclined to agree with them. It came from um, conservative Catholics. It came from pro-life people. The March for Life condemned them. And I, I really think that that condemnation came at least in part from a recognition that our side can do things like this. Now, how much of that then divided them into the wrong kind of pro-life or whatever, I don't know. But I actually found it kind of encouraging maybe the only thing that's kind of encouraging in that whole mess, that people were for once willing to criticize uh, their own side. 
I can see that. I can uh, see in, that. Until, until any kind of uncertainty came into it, and then the conservative side of the equation rallied behind them, and the liberal side rallied against them. And I, ironically, seeing 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 credible information that said that this was not as cut and dry as it looked made people hunker down more. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. We're good at hunkering. <laughs> Um, well, Michael, we're, we're kind of already shading towards this. And like I said, I already stole a little bit of the material, but I, I liked this article and I like talking about it with you guys, but I'd like to bring some more, uh, theological and philosophical reflection into this. So, I mean, we already kind of alluded earlier to St. Paul's injunction to be angry, but not sin. I, I don't know what that means because I think somewhere along the line, and I don't know where I ate this, but I internalized some stoicism so that I actually feel morally guilty after I've been angry. Uh, but, you know, what do you make of Duhigg's conclusion to this article? I mean, is this an attempt to reconcile anger with goodness again? And uh, what kinds of questions should re- we raise as Christian thinkers uh, engaging with Duhigg's project? The third or the fifth seven deadly sin, depending on how you... Uh depending on which direction you're counting them from, is wrath. And wrath's an interesting thing because it's not anger. Anger can be contained, right? Anger anger is something that can be used for good. You think about Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. I, I'm convinced that episode is in the Bible mostly to t- show us that anger is okay, that not all anger is bad. So we're not being asked the impossible here. You're allowed to be angry. Wrath happens when you take on the mantle of the punisher, the, the chastiser. And, and that's important because, I mean, the Bible is pretty clear that uh, vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. And so I think, I think wrath in that sense is a form of pride. It, it, it takes on the notion that if I don't punish this person, nobody's going to. We live in an unjust universe. God's not going to do anything about it. Uh, the law is not going to do anything about it, so I'm going to do something about it. I think that's where you—that's where we fall into problems. That's that's why Larry Cagle talking about revenge is so uh, so scary. That's why um, that's why people immediately wanting to dox anybody who has the slightest bit of negative press uh, on on Twitter. I think I think that's why that's so frightening. It's but it's the notion that. Not only am I angry about not, about this, not only do I recognize that a moral law has been broken, I'm the one who's going to punish them for it. Uh, so I, I think that's that's what you got to watch for, the, the revenge piece, the wrath piece, the punishment piece. Not your job. David, what would you add? I agree with that. Um, you know, 100%. What, what, do you, what, do you, what do you do with that? You know, are you, are you the judge? Um, I, th- I think Michael said all that rightly. Um, I also think there's another uh, the the insights that Duhigg cited uh, from James Averill at the beginning, uh, and also Duhigg's point about anger leading to uh, leading to moral indignation. That ang- anger is fundamentally, and I think first a a a kind of um, self-preservation instinct that because we are humans and moral creatures becomes also a moral instinct. Um, this is something that I was taught very, very early in life, um, which is that whenever I get angry, um, I need to consider um, 
what thing do I regard as mine that I feel to be threatened? And do I actually have the right um, to, to that thing? And often the answer was no. Um, you know, did I have the right to sit in the front seat again back when kids were allowed to sit in the front seat? Um, well, it wasn't my turn, and even though I wanted it, um, I don't actually really have a right to it. And so, but my my anger was uh, was a was a clue that I felt that something important to me was threatened, something I loved was threatened, and I needed to consider what is this thing that I'm loving, and am I loving the right thing? All right. Um, there are some things that are rightly loved, and there are some things that you ought to be angry about when they're threatened. Right? Um, you know, among them is your is your own fundamental human dignity and the fundamental human dignity of others. Right? Um, among them are certain inalienable rights. You know, to use uh, Declaration of Independence language. Right? There are things that it's worth actually getting angry about. Because um, there are precious things that should be defended when they're threatened. Um, so that's another thing, you know, to, to, you know, like you said, Michael, to recognize the limits to which your anger should go. Um, but also to recognize that um, anger can be pointing us, anger is pointing us to where our, where our priorities are. And we should second guess our anger. Um, am I, just because I'm angry about it, doesn't mean that I've tuned my anger rightly. You know, it's possible for my priorities to be wrong. Um, one of the things that I think uh, is kind of a problem with our current situation is that we too easily trust in the purity of our anger as an instinct. Um, maybe we need to consider, does this thing that makes me mad, is it actually a threat to what I love? What do I think, what am I loving that I feel is threatened? Is it actually threatened? Um, or, or is that thing that I'm loving something that I shouldn't necessarily love? Is it merely my own convenience? Is it merely my own preference? Um, the, those, are, those are things that we need to think. So it's also a kind of confession, but it's not just the confession um, the confession of sin, but also that kind of um, self-reflection and consideration um, that, that all of our passions should direct us towards. That's good, David. Uh, and it, it makes me think of that instrumentalized anger that we talked about earlier. When we are unreflective about the character of our anger, it makes it that much more convenient a handle for someone to grab hold of and steer us in the direction they want us to go. Yep. Especially when they seem to be simply confirming us in our anger. Um, yeah. You know, there, there's nothing I want more than for someone else to come alongside me and say, yeah, you should be mad about that, and I'm mad about that too. Um, that itself can be a kind of drug. I can see that. I can see that. Well, I came into this episode because I found Duhigg's main claim compelling and I wanted to bounce his ideas off of you two. Uh, here at the end, I want to take it around the horn and let you two try out some case studies. So, uh, David, I'll let you start. What's a recent news story? Uh, and you can use one that we've already talked about or pull a new one up uh, that either calls Duhigg's big idea into question or that lends him his theory some extra credence. 
And when you're done, just pass the baton on to Michael. Man, I've been dreading this question the whole time. I don't like talking about recent news stories. Sticking my neck out. You're making me stick my neck out. Oh, lousy. Uh, well, we've already been talking about, um, you know, the the situation of the week, um, you know, with the, the with the Catholic schoolboys. Um, but lateraling, lateraling from that, um, you know, you can you can readily Google and find several cases of people's um, people's anger coming to the fore because of hats. Right and the and the symbolism of hats, and particularly the "Make America Great Again" hats. Um, you know, folks who've worn them in situations where they've been denied service, or um, cases in which uh, hats were taken away, uh, stolen. Um, you know, th- thing things things like that. Um, and. I read one article. I think it might have been might have been Matthew Anderson. I think was writing out, and and it was specifically about um, about the most recent situation. Um, but he made a point about the hats, which is on one hand, you should not be instigating violence about violence towards people because of the hat they're wearing. All right. Um, you know that's just wrong. On the other hand, it is uh, disingenuous uh, for someone to say, "Well, a hat is just a hat." Um, in particular, these hats are also um, proclamations of political allegiance, uh, and they are, regardless of what you think about that political allegiance and its policies and the personalities associated with them, um, it it is still in an intentional provocation. Um, you know, if you if you wear that hat expecting to be left alone, well, I have a hard time imagining someone does wear it expecting to be left alone. Um, it's it's part of the whole Trumpian style. He doesn't want to be left alone. He wants to provoke the fights um, so that he can have an a, an occasion to punch back and. That instinct, that instinct is also, um, is also, I think, uh, there in those cases. So, you know, hats are not a good reason to be angry. However, um, I don't think it's insane to see MAGA hats as um, some indication of a of a of a provocative attitude on this on the part of the one who wears it. I mean. In a lot of places, um, it's like it's like wearing the other team's jersey and sitting in their section. Um, yeah, it's just a shirt, but um, people react to the attitude. I don't. I don't think that's something that is out of place in consideration. If that makes sense, Michael, what do you have? I will be more specific. I, I am thinking about the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, which I weighed in uh, on angrily uh, and frequently uh, during them. And I, I haven't really changed my position on, on the Kavanaugh hearings. And if you really want to know what that is, you can go comb through my Twitter feed back till 
September, October. But one thing that interests me about it is how angry he got and how his side celebrated that anger and how uh, the other side condemned him for that anger while celebrating anger on their side. So when women were angry about what Kavanaugh did or didn't do, uh, that was good anger. But Kavanaugh's anger about uh, supposedly being accused of something he didn't do, that's bad anger. And, and I don't see a whole lot of difference between those sorts of anger except what side they're on. And so I, I think if we're going to hold up anger as having some sort of value, we're going to have to be honest and say that it has value for everyone who has it and not just for people who happen to agree with me politically. Or we're going to have to say, hey, maybe anger is not a great way to operate our politics, whether you're for me or against me, which I think is my position, even though I was fairly angry during the uh, Kavanaugh hearings. And I'm going to throw it back a little bit further uh, to the George W. Bush administration. And this is going to be as much a confession of sins as it is uh, a cold analysis. Uh, and it was his attorney general, Alberto Gonzalez, uh, when he issued the memo uh, basically making it legal to torture prisoners of war, my reaction back then was not, uh, you know, the the cool, deliberative reflection of the philosopher. I mean, I wanted that man to suffer because of the suffering he was justifying on, on other people. In other words, everything that was inflicted on a prisoner and was legal now because of his work, I wanted him to suffer it. And I realize now, you know, more than a decade later, just how monstrous that is on my part. Uh, but it also makes a lot of sense of Duhigg's, you know, notion of the revenge impulse. I mean, I had a sense that you should never torture a prisoner of war. He was making that not only possible, but legal. And what I wanted really, if I'm honest, even more than for policy to shift back to something that Cicero might approve of, is that he suffer for it. So, you know, when I, when I say that, you know, I, I feel wretched about my own anger, it's that kind of anger that I'm talking about in addition to other kinds. Nathan, so, do, you, do you know the Bruce Coburn song, If I Had a Rocket Launcher? I'm not familiar with that one. Tell me about it. It's a great song. It's about uh, the U.S interference in guatemala and the helicopters that came and shot people or whatever and and i mean the point is if he had a rocket launcher he'd shoot down this helicopter and he, he actually says if i had the last line of the song is if i had a rocket launcher some sob except he you know we're a family podcast some sob would die and it's an interesting um it's an interesting song because when you listen to it you're like yeah <laughs> shoot down that helicopter but i think the point of the song is is self-reflective i think i think you listen to that song enough and you really examine what it means that you're angry enough to kill this guy who's killed other people. I, uh, I think, I think there's, there's something about what you're talking about in that song, Nathan, you should listen to it. I'll have a listen sometime. Well, at any rate, on that bleak note, uh, we're going to end today's show. Uh, next week should be maybe a little less dreary. Michael, what are we talking about? Uh, we're going to be talking about Eric Satie's, uh, piano pieces, the, uh, gymnopédie. Yay. And every time that title comes up, we're going to have Michael pronounce it. Yeah. Listeners, thank you for uh, downloading and listening in. Uh, if you want to find us online, you can go to christianhumanist.org. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can find each of us individually on Twitter. And, of course, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We always appreciate 
iTunes reviews. That's the most common platform for getting podcasts. Although I found out recently that we also have a lot of listeners on uh, the Podcast Addict app. So if you can review us there as well and subscribe to our show, we appreciate any points of contact where we can bring in new listeners. Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Christian Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. I couldn't come up with that noun. And in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer, I am Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.